got a lot of reaction, this question, are we a bunch of hypocrites? And you can imagine the kinds of reactions that I got. Um, but let's just launch into that. It is an important question. Are we a bunch of hypocrites? Because I don't know about you, but I hear that on a fairly regular basis. Those people over there, the people in that church or in that place, what a bunch of hypocrites. Anybody not heard that ever? I'd be surprised if you've never heard it. But are we, are we a bunch of hypocrites? Let's pull this apart then. Let's start with, are we a bunch? Are we a bunch? What is the collective noun for hypocrites? So you have a flock of geese, you have a pride of lions, you have a murder of crows. Why not a bunch of hypocrites? Well, let's see if it fits. How do we define bunch? Bunch, a number of things, typically of the same kind, growing or fastened together. Okay, well, Christians are a number of things. Here we are in this room, a number of things um, of the same kind by the Spirit, growing or fastened together, hopefully growing, but certainly fastened together again in the Spirit. So ideally we are these things. In fact, gathering here on a Wednesday, is this not how we grow together under the Word? It's a totally different ontology from going it alone when we gather here. So I think it's fair to say we're a bunch. Are we agreed? We're, we're a bunch. Fair enough. I think we can safely say that bunch is the appropriate collective noun for hypocrites. But are we hypocrites? That perhaps is the bigger question. How do we define hypocrisy? Hypocrisy, the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Don't slink down. <laughs> I do when I read it. So what do we think? Are we hypocrites? Well, there are some who think so, of course. All over the internet you can find people who refer to Christians as a bunch of hypocrites. And you've probably met people or, been, or are related to them or have been one yourself. When you looked at a gathering of Christians and you thought, bunch of hypocrites. And it's usually said like that too, all grumbly and gruff. Bunch of hypocrites. Somebody with a deeper voice than me could do it better. Probably not often in the tone of that more bubbly song sung with an English accent. Isn't that a lovely bunch of hypocrites? <laughs> You're going to be singing that all day, I know you are. Now, perhaps, perhaps we could identify some occasions where we are described as hypocrites. I know of some. One that stands out in my own mind was this guy called Simon. And Simon was Scottish and lived on the streets of North London. And every few weeks, he'd pop around the church and sit at the back and wait to speak to me. And when I sat beside him, he'd begin his rant about the hypocrites of the church who wear their fancy clothes and say nice things and think they're so great, all the while looking down on him because he lived on the street. Oh, he could rant. Sometimes at the back while the sermon was being preached and you could hear him grumble. Bunch of hypocrites. Right before I gave him a fiver for his lunch, usually, or a more generous 20 to help him get back to the north for a visit. It was the routine. Bunch of hypocrites. How about a fiver, Simon? Yeah, thanks. You're not like them, you know. <laughs> yeah, I am. But was Simon right? Were we, were we, are we a bunch of hypocrites? How would we know? Generally, the people that he called hypocrites I knew to be good people who gave generously to the 
sorts of work that supported people on the streets. He may have encountered them as judgmental, but how much was Simon's own projection from his insecurity? And according to the definition of hypocrisy, our own motives and behavior would need to be consistent and pure. Now there, that seems like a dissonance somehow. Are our motives consistent and pure? And we can't help but notice, and you will notice now, that in scripture, it's only Jesus who calls anyone a hypocrite. Isn't that interesting? Only Jesus calls anyone a hypocrite. And I didn't get that from a commentary, by the way. Uh, I noticed it. <laughs> I'm glad all that education has been worthwhile. But only he truly sees the heart. Perhaps only he can know for sure. But make no mistake, he sees the heart. He saw the heart of the religious leaders, and he did not hold back. Reading from Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides! You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, so that the outside also may become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Woe indeed! There is a way to be religious that focuses on the details of the law. Get everything right, and you're counted as righteous. Pray this prayer in this way. Live like this. Tidy up your life, and then expect others to look just like you. Just like you. Jesus sees through all of that external obedience. Tidy up the outside of the grave, but it's still a grave full of dead bones and rotting flesh. And did you note that last part? I didn't notice this before. The woe that comes in verses 28 and 29 relate to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees who decorate the prophets' tombs, the tombs of the prophets, they decorate them, look after them, and then they say they would never have spilled the blood of the prophets if they had been alive then. It reminds me of a little book called The Fall by the French philosopher Albert Camus. In the fall, there's a woman on a bridge in Paris over the Seine, and she's on the edge and about to jump, and there's the storyteller who was there, and he watched her jump, he watched her flail about in the water, and he watched her drown. He watched, and he did nothing. And throughout the story, he offers excuse after excuse for his inaction and the inaction of people 
in all kinds of situations in the world. In the end, he accuses his friend who has been listening and accuses all of us who are reading by asking, would you have done it differently if you had been there? We like to think so, don't we? Camus writes this, are we not all alike constantly talking and to no one? Forever up against the same questions, although we know the answers in advance? Then please tell me what happened to you one night on the keys of the Seine, and how you managed never to risk your life. You yourself utter the words that for years have never echoed ceasing through my nights, and that I shall at last say through your mouth, Oh, young woman, throw yourself into the water again so that I may a second time have a chance of saving both of us. A second time, eh? What a risky suggestion. Just suppose, cher maître, that we should be taken literally. We'd have to go through with it. Brr, the water's so cold. But let's not worry. It's too late now. It will always be too late, fortunately. So indicting, so convicting. If I had been in Hitler's Germany, if I had been near Stalin's gulag, if I had sat beside Simon, if I had a chance to minister to the homeless or feed the hungry, if I had been alive at the time of the prophets. Ah, but the stress is too great. Let us not worry. It is always fortunately too late to do what we wish we had or thought we might have given the chance. We're perpetually let off the hook of our convictions. Are we hypocrites? I think we are hypocrites in at least two ways. First of all, I think we're hypocrites because we have human character. That like Camus' character in the fall is indeed fallen. And we tend always to show our best and never our worst. And in a social media rich world, like everyone else, Christians demonstrate how righteous we are, how clever we are, and how holy we are. But Jesus sees through all of this. He always has. And we are all hypocrites. We all say one thing and do another. Christians are hypocrites too. We say we believe something and act like we don't. Leaders are hypocrites. They teach others to do this one thing while they do another. And religious leaders are perhaps the biggest hypocrites of all because we teach others and we abuse the authority of God to abuse our position while preaching about submission and humility. We should not be surprised at the accusations that come to the church when thousands upon thousands of children have had their lives marked with shame and doubt by branches of the church the world over. Well, thank goodness we are Protestants. Oh, but don't gloat. Oh, no, no. We are hypocrites too, and especially religious leaders. But we won't get into the colonial imposition that tore land from under indigenous feet. We won't worry about that. We won't mention the project to beat the Indian out of the child while Jesus looked down from his perch on the shelf or on the wall. We don't need such extreme examples to prove the case. I've served for over two decades in academic and church leadership in two countries and have encountered leaders from significant organizations and from the highest levels of ecclesial majesty and I can confidently say I think we're all hypocrites. I remember one leader whose hypocrisy caught him out for a short time and he wept for regret, not for what he had done, but out of fear of a lost reputation. 
I've been allowed, I've been bellowed at, sorry, I have been bellowed at on the phone by an archbishop who forgot his pastoral calling, but not his easily offended authority. Whilst heavily pregnant, I have been shouted at in worship by a cathedral dean and a published New Testament ethicist to get out of my chair. I'm a Baptist. I didn't know you had a special chair. <laughs> I've seen friends corrupted entirely by the smallest amount of power, Satan's temptation in the wilderness of their defeat. And I've met a few, a few leaders who at least appear to have integrity. They're probably the ones people have heard little about. They're less interested in their own reputation, more interested in serving God with humility and openness. They're the ones who make opportunities for others rather than filling every slot themselves. And they have their hypocritical tendencies too, no doubt, but they are at least less obvious. And I think the thing that worries me most in all of this is that it must mean that I am a hypocrite too. I think of these leaders, and I thank God that I'm not like them, hypocrite. I think one thing and I say another. I teach one thing and do another. Not all the time, not always, I hope. And I don't want to. But I'm not sure you can be in a position of leadership and not be some sort of hypocrite. No wonder Jesus called them out. He needed them to know that when everyone else is impressed with their religious fervor, he knows the truth. He needs us to know that when everyone else is impressed with our religious passion and our position, he knows the truth. And that's why he could say to these religious leaders who said they'd have done it differently if they'd been alive in the time of the prophets, they wouldn't have shed their blood, they'd have been on the side of the righteous. Uh-uh, Jesus says. Mm -mm. He called them out. You would so not be on their side. In fact, Jesus told them that all the blood of the generations of the righteous would come upon them in their generation. And indeed it did, as they crucified the Son of God. I wouldn't do that. Not me, bunch of hypocrites. Reading from Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. We like this passage. This refocuses us maybe on what matters. That Pharisee, that hypocrite who was thankful that he was not like other people. Imagine that. What arrogance, what pompous show. And then there's this humble tax collector who really showed us the way to be. That, that's it. We get on with our day. We worship God on our own at a distance from that hypocritical community. Bunch of hypocrites. 
All the while thanking the Father that we are not like that Pharisee. As for King David, people look at the outward appearance while the Lord looks at the heart. He will always call us on our hypocrisy if we intentionally make ourselves sensitive and available to his spirit to call us on it like a good friend always will. And we must do better as Christians to ensure that we're teaching responsible, that, we, that what we say we believe is actually credible. The way we live our lives shows evidence of our faith, that it holds together with what we say we believe about Christ. We should never think or pretend to be perfect or to know it all, but we are called to live lives of integrity more now than ever before. Don't you know that teachers will be judged more harshly? And so they should. None of us should ever enter into Christian leadership unless we're willing to live in a fishbowl. You have to be willing to embrace the fishbowl with all of its required vulnerabilities and integrity, everybody watching every move. Oh, that's not fair. That's the call. The accusation of hypocrite, then, applies to us. But applies to us, I think, for a second reason. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr suggested that we are by nature hypocrites because we have glimpses of something we believe in, but we can't attain in this lifetime. Do you get me on that one? I think it's really important. We glimpse the perfection of the holy love of God on the cross. And we bear witness to it, but we can't achieve that level of love ourselves. By nature of our profession and confession, we value something, believe in something that our own standards fall short of every day. And this creates a seeming double standard in our work and our witness as Christians. There is the way God sees what's happening, the perspective of the kingdom, and then there's the way that an outsider might see it when they're looking at Christian life and at ministry, and they might see it as a deception of sorts. That's not new. Reading from the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, beginning at verse 2. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way, through great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown, and yet we are well known, as dying, and see, we are alive, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Here in this passage from 2 Corinthians 6, our actions as servants of the gospel are to be exemplary. And in that effort and self-sacrifice, there will be those who simply misread our efforts. And it, it marks out what those efforts are. It afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, labors. It makes my sleepless nights seem a lot less significant when it comes that far down the list. Hunger, 
And we achieve these by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit. It's all there what's expected of us. But yet there's also this really interesting take on what Christians, how Christians behave in that passage. That what we do is often misread, misinterpreted, misunderstood. People don't get us one day, but they might get us the next. We're seen as imposters or deceivers, but we're true. We're seen as unknown, but we're known. We're seen as, seen as dying, but yet we're alive. We look at the church and we think, that's dying. But we're more alive than anything in the land. So clearly, even for the Apostle Paul, there was a clear sense that he knew as a leader he was being seen as a hypocrite by those who did not yet have spiritual eyes to see. And being perceived as a hypocrite isn't what makes us a hypocrite. And Paul is, in a way, helping us to understand that to be called a hypocrite should be expected when we're speaking a language and walking a walk that people simply do not understand. When Simon called our congregation hypocrites, he was right in a way. But partly he just didn't understand. He couldn't grasp how much they actually cared or how they reached out or what actions they expressed when they embraced him for their faith, in their faith. He could only see that they were different from himself. So what can we say about all of this? I think the world will always call us a bunch of hypocrites. But they're often guilty of misunderstanding, and we need to understand that. We also need to understand that the church has often given them too sufficient reason for thinking we're a bunch of hypocrites, and to be sensitive to many who have had damaging experiences from the church. Jesus calls us to make every effort for our words and our actions to line up. And so I have to recognize and confess my hypocrisy. I'm a hypocrite every time I criticize the church. I'm a hypocrite every time I buy something I don't need. I'm a hypocrite when I snap at someone who asks me the same question for the tenth time. I'm a hypocrite when I tiptoe into the room across from my office and steal one of Harry's Nespresso pods because I've been on a Nestle boycott since the 80s, but I tell myself I really need that coffee. It's okay. <laughs> to be honest, we really have to ask Jesus if we're a bunch of hypocrites. And there's enough we know about. Imagine how much he has to show us. So I think we probably all are. I think to be human is to be a hypocrite because we aim at so much more than we can ever demonstrate or achieve, and this is all the more true for Christians. And yet the harder thing to achieve has been achieved for us. There's nothing we can boast to one another in the church or to the world other than Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, and don't miss it. In a world full of hypocrites, we are the bunch who come before God in this place as often as we can, willing to be confronted by our hypocrisy. And here, it's not the world calling us out, but Jesus himself. And here we fall on his mercy as we beg him to be merciful to us, sinners that we are. Here, we find a balm for our healing, and here we are renamed and recreated and reformed. Not simply as a bunch of hypocrites, but as the children of God, as we claim to abide in Christ, so let us walk as Jesus walked, and to him be the glory.